0: Reflections on Life at the End of Time, Part 5, the fifth talk in the series, was presented by Jack Crabtree on July 26, 2015, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction, all other rights reserved.
1: Okay, last week we looked at my reason for thinking that we're at the end of the present time, and I suggested two major reasons. One is the kind of darkness that seems to be descending on our culture and world culture worldwide seems to be the kind of darkness that is of a nature and a degree and a kind that is unprecedented in the world. We've never really seen anything like this. There have been very evil times in world history. There's no question about that. But it seems to me it's unprecedented that we actually have the very concept of truth itself under attack in the modern world, which leaves to the extent that that gets mainstreamed and a part of the culture, that then leaves us wide open to complete manipulation and deception and seems to be setting the stage for what the prophetic picture suggests is going to come down at the end of time. And then the other reason is for the first time in history, we actually seem to have the pieces and the players being put in place that actually match the picture that you get in the prophets. So for those two reasons, I'm prepared to conclude I think we are at the end of this present time. Now, not everyone is going to see, read the signs the way I do, or even acknowledge that those facts are facts and those observations are true. So I want to talk briefly about, well, what about the other people out there that you interact with who are going to be naysayers and going to say, you're crazy, this just really isn't true. Why might they think that? Well, of course, one reason they might think that is because I am crazy. I have totally misread our time, our culture, history, and so on. Maybe I'm wrong. That's always a distinct possibility, but I'm going to set that aside. <laughs> I'm going to assume that I'm not wrong. If I'm not wrong, what might some other reasons be? Let me read a passage in Second Peter here that I think captures a problem that has always existed for belief. Know this, first of all. Peter is writing in Second Peter. I'm Second Peter three three. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about there, but what I'm interested in is this part about these mockers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It seems to me that all of us experience a kind of intellectual inertia, Day after day after day goes on and the next day is like the last day and the next day is like the last day. And it's so orderly and so regular that we just get lulled to sleep and we just automatically assume there is going to be no cataclysmic event that's going to interfere or disrupt my life. I've planned for the future. I've thought about the future. I constantly make decisions based on the regularity of the future. So we just think that the future is going to be the same as the past. That's a very common human phenomenon. Bob mentioned it just a second ago. How many of us get up in the morning thinking this may be my last day? Of course we don't, but it can be. Every now and then it is that all of us are ultimately going to face some major disruption in the regularity of history and the regularity of our lives and the order of our lives. Well, what we're talking about is at the end of the present time is a major discontinuity, a major disruption of the regularity of history. We know it's coming. It's just a question of when. But because we are so accustomed to always dismissing the cataclysmic dismissing the discontinuity, dismissing the disruption. No, it's not going to happen. Not in my lifetime. We don't have any basis for saying that, but sort of psychologically, it's just the human thing to do. So a lot of people are going to just dismiss the very claim out of hand just because, well, how do I deal with that? It is difficult to know how to deal with the end of time. How do you plan your life if your life is not going to go on in an orderly way? And in fact... I wouldn't recommend that you do plan for it. You should plan your life as if it's going to go on. But we know that the time is coming where my plans are going to be thwarted. They're going to be cut short. There's going to be this discontinuity. And that's what I'm proposing, is that if we look at the signs, that day may come sooner than later, sooner than we think. But a lot of people aren't going to want to deal with that because out of this kind of inertia that is a very human phenomenon. I think that was the same obstacle that was in play when Jesus came the first time. I'm the Messiah. Put yourself in their position, in the position of the people hearing that. Yeah, right. (laughs) How many thousands of years have we lived and the Messiah hasn't come yet? Why would it be now? Why would I think you are the Messiah? That had to be some inertia that they had to overcome and in order to overcome that inertia, there had to be some pretty significant signs that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And we read that passage last week where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you look at the sky, you know how to read the signs in the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. Jesus was giving them all kinds of signs that he, this was a disruption, this was a discontinuity, this was an unusual event, and yet they ignored it. And part of the reason they ignored it is because human beings always ignore the cataclysmic, the dramatic change in the order. We just assume that the order that has been is the order that will be. So I think that's one of the reasons you'll find your friends and relatives dismissing this. They'll dismiss it out of hand. Another one is, as would have been true of me five years ago, just ignorance. I had never really in earnest studied the prophets. And I still have to say I haven't in earnest studied the prophets. I feel like a real novice. But through the New Testament, which I feel more comfortable in and more confident about, I've begun to get a picture of how the New Testament authors grasp the prophetic picture from the prophets. And if you don't have that, if you don't have a picture in place about how the end times are going to look, it's very easy to say, yeah, no, your picture's not right. Well, do you have a better one to put in place? Well, no, no, but your picture's not right. That's a very easy thing to do, especially if the third problem is at play, and that's fear. Fear is huge, and the more I look at, and the more I experience and the more I look at the Bible, the more I realize what an enemy of belief, an enemy of faith, an enemy of our spirituality fear is. Fear is something we must overcome. But if we are afraid of what the end of the present time might mean for me personally, if the prospect of that meaning suffering or facing contempt or derision or any number of things that are likely to come down the pike, and if I'm afraid of those things, another very common human reaction is to stick our heads in the sand. That's too scary. The prospects are too scary, so I'm not going to allow myself to believe that it's even real. No, life is just going to go on. We're safe now. We've always been safe. We'll be safe in the future. I have to believe that. I have to believe that for my own psychological well-being because I don't know how to deal with the fear. I've mentioned this before, but I've always been struck by this passage at the end of Revelation. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth where which i think in revelation 21 is talking about eternity. He says and he who sits on the throne said behold i am making all things new and he said write for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me it is done. I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and i will be his god and he will be my son. Now, note this. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What struck me is the inclusion of the cowardly in that list. Two things stand out, the cowardly and liars. Those who will not trade in truth, but will rather trade in lies, but also the cowardly. And that's kind of opened my eyes to start looking around. And as I watch human interactions and so on, how much I've seen how cowardice will prevent us from embracing the truth that otherwise we would embrace and that we ought to embrace and that is life to us. The truth that is life to us, we will not embrace because we're afraid. And the other thing I've noticed is how no good thing comes out of fear. No good consequence happens when I make a choice out of fear. I hurt other people. I destroy other people. I undermine good things. I erode good things. Just by those stupid, silly little things we say because we're afraid and we're trying to protect ourselves. Well, fear is going to be a big deal when we are asking the question, where are we at in history, and are we at the end of the present time? I'm afraid. I'm tempted to be afraid. And we have to overcome that fear by gaining the right perspective, the truth. And the truth is, I was created for God, not for myself. I was created to play whatever role God wants me to play in history. And it's his prerogative to decide what that's going to be. It's not my prerogative. It's his prerogative to decide what that's going to be. God ultimately is doing a good thing. If it involves pain, if it involves suffering, if it involves death, whatever it might involve, it is nonetheless, it is a good thing that God is creating. And belief is wanting that good thing that God is purposing to create. That's the faith that we are called to throughout the gospel. Every aspect of belief in Jesus entails that we should want the good thing that God wants to do. So it's having that perspective, understanding that, knowing that, and embracing that, that will allow me to gulp and go through whatever God wants me to go through, endure whatever he wants me to endure, suffer whatever he wants me to suffer. But that's what makes us fit for eternal life, to be the kind of people who will allow truth to trump our fear, our psychological response, and our emotional response. But if we let fear dictate how we're going to think, what we're going to decide, what we're going to believe, and so on, fear will drive a wedge between us and God between us and truth, between us and God, between us and Jesus, between us and righteousness. If it has its way, it will destroy us. We must overcome fear. Then there are people who are going to respond with a kind of what I call skeptical agnosticism, which I would argue ultimately, I think, is a mask for fear. It masquerades as an intellectually responsible thing to do, but it's actually just a mask for fear all too often. Agnosticism is never a virtue. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that, but agnosticism is not a good thing. Agnosticism is a bad thing. But we've been kind of sold by our culture that agnostics are the people who are enlightened, careful, cautious. They want to be responsible. They really want to get this thing right. And they're just going along making sure that they have all the T's crossed and I's dotted before they commit, right? And how can that be a bad thing? That has to be a good thing, right? It has to involve intellectual integrity and be the intellectually responsible thing to do. But we were made to know, not made to not know. We were made to know. So if we don't know, that is what agnosticism means, if we don't know, that's a defect. There's something wrong that needs to be fixed. There's something lacking that needs to be supplied. I need to get past my not knowing to my knowing. That's the intellectually responsible thing to do, is to get past agnosticism. Humility is a wonderful thing, but humility is not the same thing as agnosticism. Humility is the way I respond to the fact that I don't know. If I don't know something, humility demands that I don't pretend otherwise. I simply acknowledge the defect, I acknowledge the lack, And I recognize it as the lack that it is or the defect that it is. That's humility. Humility we should never overcome. We should never fix our humility. We should always eternally remain humble. But we should not always eternally remain agnostic. So whenever we make our agnosticism a fixed state of mind and then elevate it to the level of some kind of virtue, something's wrong. We're not thinking about this rightly. The valid position, rationally, would be, if I don't know what to decide, would be I choose not to make a judgment with respect to whether we're at the end of time, for example. I choose not to make a judgment because I don't know enough yet to make a judgment. Okay, that's humility. But it's also a place you don't want to stay. If you don't know enough, then learn it. If you don't know enough, think harder. If you don't know enough, study more. If you don't know enough, figure out what's going on. You might now be at a place where you don't know enough to make a judgment, and humility says, okay, I'm not going to make a judgment yet. I need to gather more information. But I think everything about our humanity says, okay, then do it. Gather more information. But all too often, what we say instead is, I choose to believe that we are not at the end of this present time because I don't know enough to make a judgment. Do you see the sleight of hand? I choose not to believe. I'm actually making a commitment of sorts. I'm choosing to say life will go on as it always has for the last thousand years. Life will not change. We are not at the end of time. I choose to believe that the order will remain and that it will not be disrupted. Why? Ah, Because I don't know enough to make up my mind. That's intellectual irresponsibility masquerading as humility. It's not true humility Actually, more often not, it's probably fear. It's my fear at play. Another obstacle is, you know, notice that one of the things that I've proposed as a sign of our times is that the absolute collapse of faith in our culture, in our world. People just aren't believing. They don't honor God. They don't serve God. They don't even like God. They're not interested in God. But to make that judgment, you have to know what that is and what that looks like. What does it look like for somebody to be godly? What does it look like for somebody to be righteous? What does it look like for somebody to be wise and believing? If you don't know what it looks like, you can't look out there and notice that it's missing because you don't even know what faith is. So there are many Christians, I think, in modern Christian culture who don't have the foggiest idea what faith is and what it looks like. They know how to fit in to their particular church culture, Christian culture, but they don't know what biblical faith is. So when biblical faith begins to evaporate and go away and disappear, they don't notice it. And then finally, I do think among a lot of Christians, there's a kind of incipient unbelief. We who believe, believe, but we don't really believe. And what does that look like? I think to far too many Christians, they're Christians by religion and by faith, but they don't actually believe that any of this stuff is actually reality. It's reality in the sense that I say it's reality, I talk about it with other people as if it's reality, I like the stimulation of dialogue about this belief that we have, but do I actually think it's going to come into my life and impinge on my life and on history? It's actually going to transform history? Uh, don't get weird on me, Jack. <laughs> that, that's way too fanatical. It's not true in that sense. This is my religion, not my conviction about the way the world is going to go or the way reality is going to go. And very few of us actually think through the distinction, but if you watch how we operate and watch how we think about this and examine attitudes, the attitude is you're really going way out there if you think that it's actually going to make a difference in empirical reality and empirical history. Don't be thinking that. Well, if you don't think it's going to make a difference in empirical reality and history, you don't believe. God is not doing this for us. God did not invent a religion for us to play at religion and have fun being church people together or Christians together. It's not for us. He's doing this for him. And in that passage we just looked at in First Peter, notice he says, the people who say that the world has gone on the way it always has from the very beginning, what was that about, a flood? <laughs> Wasn't there a flood stuck in there? Wasn't that a world-changing event once upon a time? Well, it's going to happen again. But they just ignore that fact. We don't just believe in Noah and his archiarchy. We believe that the world was actually transformed at a certain point in time by a cataclysmic event that transformed everything. And that's going to happen again. And it's actually thinking that that's reality that makes us disciples of Jesus. Okay, let me pause there. Now I want to go on to how do we prepare for the end of the present time. But let me pause there before we go on.
2: Throughout most of history, it appears to me, it's my perception that, Christianity hasn't been one where people really think about it as, I think, as you're referring to, as you have just um, mentioned. I always struggle with that, Jack, because I'll go places, and I'll be with other Christians, and it's, it's almost like a pep rally where it's this emotional Jesus, and there's a lot of terminology, and it seems like there's two camps. One is uh, glory be to God, and there's a lot of God language, and it's um, very kind of emotional driven. Then on the other hand, it's more this a cognitive approach toward um, truth. And but from my perspective it seems like most of history really hasn't been this kind of academic view. They've believed that God has been the orchestrator of history. There's a faith in that. But it seems much more simplistic. And I'm not really sure how to reconcile all of that. I'm not even sure if I'm making sense to you how to view Christianity, how to view truth. Uh, maybe Christianity has just changed, maybe because we've had all the resources we've been able to read, we have the, the production of literature. If you will, we've just evolved how truth has been articulated, and we've had, just like the Internet, whatever, you, mm-hmm. you have all of that now that they didn't have then. Better educated people, I guess, if you will.
1: So let me make sure I'm getting the number of your questions. So specifically the intellectual aspect of understanding the faith How much is that at the heart of what our faith is all about as opposed to more? Yeah,
2: when push comes to shove, my faith is about an existential connection with God. As much as making sure that the worldview makes sense to me, ultimately it's that I have this connection with God. Okay. Okay.
1: Let me save my answer to my next point because it's closely related to that. So I'll remember your question and comment on that as I'm developing my next point. That's a good question. That's a great question.
3: Suppose you're a Christian who believes in all millennialism and that the church is the new Israel and and all that kind of stuff. Would you put that person in the camp that you're talking about today, the one who refuses to see the truth and all that? How are you organizing your thoughts on people who maybe disagree with your interpretation, but maybe...
1: Well, some of them would probably fit into the category of people who refuse to look at the truth. But I don't know their heart. I'm not in a position to judge what the ultimate wellsprings of their different point of view is. Sometimes, I've spent most of my life being wrong <laughs> rather than right. And was I insincere? Did I, was I in rebellion against the truth? Was I not interested in truth? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's why I got it wrong. I got it wrong because I was ignorant and incompetent. So So,
3: in in your categories, uh, being theologically wrong, truth would fit inside the category of true believer if, say, their heart was good and they were humble before before the truth and stuff. They just got some stuff wrong. That is okay, really.
1: Well, okay. That's the point I want to make that I want to address, Kurt. Okay. We're near the end of time. How do we prepare? Number one, we pursue wisdom. And I want to look at a passage here in a second. I was going to do that first, but let me jump right to my point. We need to pursue wisdom. And to pursue wisdom, you have to pursue understanding. There is no wisdom where there is no understanding. Now, what's confusing about that is we think of wisdom and faith and righteousness and godliness and stuff as kind of all coming together and salvation as all coming together. But I think it's important that we parse them out they don't come together. You can be saved without being wise. You can be saved without understanding, but you can't be wise without understanding. And it comes right to the point that you were on the verge of making, my heart might be right. The spirit of God, the spirit of truth is at work in my insides to make me receptive, to make me open, to give me a passion to know God and to serve him and to honor him and obey him. And I can do that in complete ignorance of anything that God is up to in the world. I am a child of God, but boy, am I foolish. Because I don't have a clue what the Bible says, what it teaches, where this is all going, how it's all going to end, why any of it makes sense. And I probably believe contradictory things. I probably believe completely false things, some of which are actually very destructive. I'm a fool in all kinds of ways, but I'm a sanctified fool. I'm a fool who's being called to belong to the people of God, and God has grabbed my heart and is pulling it to himself. That's enough for salvation. That's what qualifies us for eternal life. That's what makes us people who belong to God. But let's not confuse that and say, well, they love Jesus. So they must be wise. No, they're not, because they don't understand. They don't look at their Bible. They don't study their Bible. What they have looked at and studied, they don't understand. They don't understand it rightly. They haven't devoted themselves to it enough to understand it rightly. And there's a lot about what they believe that's just really foolish. So that's how I was going to respond to you, Kurt. Understanding is indispensable to wisdom. We cannot be wise without it. So, and I would argue that that's what we're called to. We are disciples of Jesus. We are students of Jesus. Jesus came into the world to tell us what's up. And when I become a follower of Jesus, I become someone who's training along behind, listening to him, taking to heart what it is that he's telling me about what's up. If I'm not doing that, if I don't care what he thinks or what he teaches or how he's instructed me or what it means and how to interpret it and so on, how am I a follower of Jesus? I may be a sanctified child of God. That's possible. For the journey that I'm on, I'm not even at the level of being a follower of Jesus yet, but God is nonetheless calling me out and making me his own. So salvation is not the issue here. But we've been called to be disciples. We've been called to be his students. And there's no way to be a student without getting your head involved and trying to wrap my mind around what is it that he told us What is it that he taught us about God, ourselves, mankind, reality, history, our destiny? Knowing all that stuff is a part of understanding, and understanding is indispensable to wisdom. How can I navigate reality when I don't even know what reality is? And wisdom is the skill to navigate reality. Well, you can't do that if you don't know, if you don't have understanding. So, in a nutshell, I would say the intellectual aspect of our faith is at the essence and the heart of what our faith is all about. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I need to be a follower of Jesus. I need to get my head in gear and figure out what it is that he taught us. Now, in of itself, that's not enough because it's entirely possible for people to engage in intellectual activity at arm's length. And we have fun with the intellectual stimulation of the ideas and the debate and the dialogue and the discussion and so on and so forth, but we're not about to let it in. We're not about to let it cost me, challenge me, rebuke me, correct me in the way that I am as a person. So faith is more than just intellectual commitment. It's also an existential commitment where I'm willing to bet my entire being on the truth of this thing. And that's a deeply personal and a deeply inward reality that is indispensable to faith. I'm not even sanctified if I'm not prepared to make that kind of existential commitment. So it's more than the intellectual, but it's not less than the intellectual. And it certainly includes the intellectual. And some people are going to say, oh, that's way too academic. Well. Last time I read the Bible, it's pretty academic. And yet we I think we agree. If people are prepared to jettison the Bible, then I don't know what to say. But most Christians agree that the Bible is the, the source of information about what it means to follow Jesus. Well, the Bible is intrinsically something that requires me to engage my mind in order to understand it. So given the proviso
3: you have, would you say that if a person is truly sanctified of God and a child of God, that he would put it within their heart to seek the truth, to ask questions, to seek wisdom, to seek understanding, etc.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I've been puzzled all my life. I've seen Christians in churches and so on where I, I'm not quite sure I can do it justice and how to describe it, but if ever the conversation started to go in the direction of, doctrine, theology, teaching, truth, something ever, their eyes would glaze over and they'd check out. And I I don't understand that. I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. (laughs) How is that not at the heart and soul of what it means to be a Christian is that we care about what's true. Uh, Particularly, we care about the truth about God and Jesus and what God is doing through Jesus and how we relate to Jesus and so on. If I don't care about that, in what sense... Am I a Christian? How do I even qualify? Now, we have to be careful. Different people are different. And they will express that passion and that hunger and that drive and that quest differently. And so I can't dictate to you or anyone else what that needs to look like in your life. That's between you and God. But I find it very difficult to believe that somebody can be a genuine follower of Jesus and not in their own way have that spark of passion for truth that's driving them and defining them inside.
2: Yeah. I would agree with that, Jack. I guess my question was, we have the luxury now of the Bible and the luxury of being able to do research, whereas most of history, let's say you were Paul addressing a congregation. Shortly after you're dead or all the apostles are dead, it was exponential, the slide down toward confusion, into confusion, and then for, what, 1,800 years or or so, I don't know, 1,500 my history is dubious at best. Only then did we get the New Testament. Then did we accumulate a lot of the information that we now have so that we could actually become students. So you had all this whole, a large segment of history where people just didn't have that luxury.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, I don't know if I trust history that much. The people that go down in history are not necessarily the most righteous, the most godly, the most truth-seeking, the most earnest, the most hard-working people. It's the ambitious, the power-hungry, the greedy that tend to make a place for themselves in history more than truly good people. So granted, if we look at history, it looks like you go for long stretches without anyone who really cares about truth. But do we really know that? Just because they're lost in the fog of the past doesn't mean they weren't vibrantly pursuing the truth while they were alive on the earth. And I'm inclined to think that that's probably true. Now, were they few and far between? Sure, always will be, always have been. Jesus said the way to eternal life is exceedingly narrow, and few will go down that way. But even within history, you kind of marvel at Some of these people who devoted their life to a tedious, painstaking work of making concordances and lexicons and stuff like that before computers, they were into it. And was it merely an intellectual exercise for them? It might have been, but I doubt it. It has all the earmarks of someone who wanted to know God and wanted to give tools to people so that other people could know God better. And they knew that to study the Bible, they needed these tools. So they devoted themselves to creating them, some of them handwritten. There's a Jewish scholar named Manelkern who made a concordance of the Old Testament. I have a copy of it. It's all handwritten. It is incredible, an incredible work. So you're right. If we look at history, it looks like there wasn't much going on, but I have to think that's kind of an illusion. I think God has always, like he said to Elijah, there must be 7,000 people who have, men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. There have probably always been 7,000 people who have not ignored his gospel and ignored his truth down through the ages. Before we leave the topic,
3: you mentioned salvation and whether some things are not really a salvation issue, but have you noticed, as I seem to have, that... Notice what you... Would you a person's soteriology and their eschatology are related that one informs the other have you noticed that or have you noticed that yourself how your view of salvation I don't think I
1: I don't I'm not sure well tell me give me an example well for example This just
3: comes off the top of my head, so I haven't really thought about it. But in some people's view of eschatology, Ezekiel's temple is going to be rebuilt, and you're going to have animal sacrifices, and some of those animal sacrifices are going to be propitiatory or expiatory. That would really be like fingers on a chalkboard to someone who believes that Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice for all sin.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I I think you're right. I think what was the case in my life is I had a conception of the gospel that Jesus came into the world to die for my sins. And then God sent the Holy Spirit so that I could live an abundant, prosperous, victorious life. And that's what he wants for everybody. Well, there's no room there for Israel absolutely no, Any anytime anyone would try to propose that, and, but he's also going to do this thing in Israel, was kind of mind-blowing because, well, that's kind of superfluous. <laughs> Why would he do that? And it wasn't until in very recent years where I began to put enough of the pieces together to realize this is a much more multifaceted, textured story that God is telling than just Okay, I'll send Jesus to patch you up and then I'll send his spirit to empower you and then watch you. It's a very simple picture, but it's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is much more textured and much more complex and much more involved than that. And it has all kinds of subplots and sub-themes to it, one of which is all about Israel. Well, until I saw that, I wasn't prepared to take seriously somebody's eschatology that was centered in Israel all that much. So I think that's an example of what you're talking about. Okay. So the passage I wanted to look at briefly is in First Thessalonians 5. He says, Now as to the times in the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Now this is the passage I want to look at. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Okay, we're contemplating the end time. It's going to come upon us like a thief, but it's not going to come upon us as a thief if we are of the day and not of the night. If we are not sleeping and not drunk, then it's not going to come upon us like a thief. But since we are of day, how should we behave? let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Okay, whatever that means, there's a clue as to what Peter thinks we ought to do. And he describes it as putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, hope of salvation. The key to understanding what he's talking about here is to understand how the biblical authors use the metaphor of donning garments, in this case, armor. But whether it's clothing or armor, to put on clothing or to put on armor is a metaphor for them. It's a metaphor for making a focused personal commitment to something. If you put on faith, you're making a personal concerted effort to pursue faith. If you put on hope, then you're making an existential commitment to pursue hope. And the other one he gives is love here. Well, what's faith? Faith is not this weird thing that we Christians have come to believe that it is. Faith is simply, purely and simply, belief. So to put on belief is to pursue belief. Well, how do you pursue belief? Again, most Christians think, I did that 10 years ago. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with that now? I did that 10 years ago. No, to put on faith, belief, is to take it on. What is this truth that I have embraced? I need to understand it. I need to understand it accurately. I need to understand it thoroughly. I need to understand it truly. So to put on the breastplate of faith is to make a personal subjective project to be, I want to understand what it is I believe. I need to know it. I need to own it. I need to master it gain some kind of mastery over this gospel that I have come to believe. He talks about love here. I think in this context, the love is not love for one another, but I think is the love of God, which includes love for one another, certainly. You can't love God without loving one another. But it's more comprehensive than loving one another. It's the love for God himself. So to make it a personal project, if you will, to learn what it means, to learn what it looks like, and to learn how to do this thing of loving God. To put on the breastplate of love is to take on that project. And then to put on as a helmet the hope of salvation is to understand what this hope is that we are hoping in. Again, all of this comes to basically comes down to understanding, I think. And that's why I say, I don't think we can be wise without understanding. We can't obey this exhortation. We can't follow this exhortation that he's just given us without pursuing understanding because that's what he's telling us to do. Pursue an understanding of your faith, of your hope, of the love of God. And that we get by understanding what Jesus taught us and that we get by understanding the Bible. That's our access to the teaching of Jesus. Now, it's possible to become a more godly person through life and suffering alone. No Bible. I just go through life, and life beats up on me, and it starts me thinking, and it opens my eyes, it opens my eyes to my creator, and I open my arms to my creator, and I become a more godly and a more righteous individual, and to some extent, wiser individual. But there's more to wisdom than just that. I was struck in preparing for this in the passage in Daniel, Daniel 12. And I think I've mentioned this before. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but to the others will go to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight, and now he's talking about understanding, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So he seems to be making a distinction between those who will go to everlasting life which are anyone and everyone who's a part of the people of God will go to everlasting life. But there will be those who have insight and they will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That, I think, is part of wisdom, is having what Daniel calls insight. I don't merely have this kind of vague and coet notion that God is good and God is merciful and God is loving and I can trust him and everything will be fine. To have understanding is to also understand exactly what are you up to, God? How is history going to go and why? What's the meaning of this? What's the significance of this? What are you embodying? What are you reflecting about who you are in the way that you are scripting? history here. That's part of understanding, I think. And you don't come to understanding just by hurting. You come to understanding by knowing what God has revealed, what he's told you, what he's taught you. And that, I think, is the role that the Bible plays. And that, I think, is how we prepare for the end of time. If we want to know what's happening around us at the end of time, we have to have insight. And we get insight by going to the Bible. You don't need to be a master exegete and translator to understand the Bible. There's nothing wrong with learning the Bible from teachers who have the time, the inclination, the skill, the competence, the calling, the gift to do the kind of research and the kind of thinking to interpret and translate the Bible. That's fine. You're not somehow being remiss if God has not called you to that kind of personal study and so you don't do it. The question is, are you interested in what's there? That's the question. To that, you have to apply yourself to the goal of understanding it, especially in modern culture. You've got TED Talks. You've got sermons being preached by masterful preachers and so on. That's not education. That's entertainment. It's a certain kind of entertainment. It's a stroking of the mind. It's an appeal to the mind. Education cannot happen without you, the student, exerting effort and applying to yourself. I want to know, I need to know, I'm going to do whatever works it takes so that I make that my own, so that I understand it, I own it, I have mastery over it, I understand it. No teacher in the world, no matter how good they are, can make you learn or can give you knowledge or can give you understanding. You need to take it on. And you need to decide, I want to understand, and so I will work on it until I do understand it. Then a teacher is available to you to help you, to suggest some ways of thinking, to suggest some knowledge and background that you may lack. Whatever is missing, the teacher can supply. But they're supplying it to you so that you can teach yourself, so that you can master it yourself, so that you can learn it yourself but they can't just give you the knowledge. They can't just give you the understanding. So you don't have to be the researcher, but you have to be the student. If you're not a student, you are not a learner. And if you are not a learner, you will not learn. You will not understand. It seems to me true that if I'm apathetic about what the Bible teaches, then I'm apathetic about wisdom and understanding and the teaching of Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a reason none of us read our Bibles. It's hard. It makes no sense. But I'm not talking about reading your Bible. I'm talking about bit by bit, baby step by baby step, little by little, increment by increment, deciding I need to understand that part, and I'm not going to rest until I understand that part, and then I'll go on, and then I'll build on that. But I'm not going to rest. I'm not just going to take the attitude, ah, it's too hard. Let it go. Doesn't matter how hard it is, take it on. Take it on and understand it. Are we really going to be able to say to Jesus at the judgment, I just didn't find what you had to say really all that interesting, Jesus? Not enough application, not very entertaining, just wasn't engaging enough, Jesus. Stop to think about that for a second. That's what we say to Bible teachers all the time. That's what we say to preachers all the time. Ah, he, you know, he bores me. Well, what's that have to do with it? Okay, so he's boring, but the information. Is that information that we need to know, that we need to embrace, that we need to understand, that we need to build into our insight to give us insight? If it is, then it's on us to do whatever work it takes to make that happen. But, yeah, if you just read the gospel messages, Jesus isn't, you know, he's not a very good communicator. Speaks in parables nobody understands and little cryptic statements that nobody understands. I mean, what a terrible communicator. Okay, but he did what he did. He's taught what he taught, the way he taught it, and are we going to seek to understand it? Do we realize who he was? Do we realize that he was the son of God himself, the only man in all of reality who knew what he was talking about? And yet we're going to let a little bit of work stand in the way between us and that wonderful treasure of knowledge and understanding that he brought into the world? That's crazy. None of us would think that. But that's our real attitude, our real-life response way too often. okay. I don't think I have enough time for this next point, so let me pause there And for any questions or comments. And...
4: Hey, Jack, I was thinking about what you were talking about and thinking about how so many of us, when we think about this, what we're thinking is, well, I just need to love God, and I need to love people, and, and that's, that's the really important stuff. And so we think about, well, what does that mean? And we use a very human conception of what that means. And so we, we worship God because that must make him feel good. And if we see somebody who needs a sandwich, we buy them a sandwich because, well, now they're not hungry anymore. But I think part of what's powerful about the truth and what you're talking about is that if God is really interested, if, if the most significant gift that he gave us was truth, was reality, then loving God is taking that seriously. Right. And if the most important and most vital thing for another human being is truth and is reality, then I can't really love someone else if I don't understand the truth and can't give them the truth. I can give them a sandwich, but if when it comes to understanding reality, I've just sort of said, well, okay, whatever, but I'll just I'll keep loving God and I'll keep loving people, then when the shit hits the fan and they're going to come to me and they're going to want to know what's going on and all I can give them is a sandwich. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well said. No, that's exactly right. My agreement with you on that is what puts me thoroughly in the camp of the fundamentalists. Back in the day in the fundamentalist-modernist debate, that was one of the things, one of the most significant things that divided the fundamentalists and the modernists. The modernists wanted to give out sandwiches, and the fundamentalists wanted people to understand the gospel. And that's held in contempt. I, the younger generation is being taught to hold that very perspective in contempt. No, it's all about feeding people and healing people and helping people and loving people and binding their wounds, all of which is a wonderful thing to do. But like they're saying, what, so they can go to hell? So they can be completely without insight? You're joining me in the fundamentalist ranks with your...
0: Hey, Jack. The question that I keep kind of butting up against recently is, I think so many of us that grew up with the Bible we take end-time prophecy for granted that it exists and is a part of our religion. But the more I think about it, it's really quite bizarre that it's there. And if what we're supposed to do when we confront it is seek truth, all of these things that we should be doing anyways, whether the world is ending or not. Right. I always think when I, you see the prophet on the street saying, repent for the end is near, I don't know if the end is near, but should people repent? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know, I guess, do you have any sense of, from kind of a divine determinist perspective, why is this a part of our canon? Why is this information deemed important when so much other information was left out?
1: Well, because, yeah, I think I'm beginning to understand that. The Old Testament is preoccupied with it. That's what is shocking for somebody who's came from where I came from and where I started from. I thought the gospel to the Gentiles was what the Bible was all about. And you go back and read the Old Testament, I'm nowhere to be seen. (laughs) I'm exaggerating, but it's preoccupied with God and his relationship to Israel. Well, why are you spending all your time on that? I'm a Gentile. Who cares about the Jews, right? Why are you spending all that time on that? Because if I'm right, this whole thing is a reflection of the person and being and character of God. Just like a novelist reflects who he is in the novel he writes, God is reflecting who he is in the history that he is creating, the story that he's creating throughout real history. And a very, very important sub-theme of that history is the fact that God took an inconspicuous people, made them his own, made grand, grand promises to them, promises that he had never made to any other people group in all of the world. All he asked of them is that they give their hearts to God. They didn't. They still didn't, they still didn't, they still didn't, they still haven't. Thousands of generations later, God's going to come along and say, I made a promise to you, I'm going to keep it. I am a God who keeps my promises, and I am loyal to my promises, and I will not fail. Well, the prophets tell us that that's the end of the story. Well, that's part of what I need to know if I'm going to have insight. If I'm going to know the God of the Bible, if I'm going to know the God who is my creator, knowing that is part of knowing him. It may not involve me, but that's okay. It doesn't have to involve me in order for it to be reflective of who God is, the God that I am seeking to know. So I think that's why it's there. Not only why it's going to get played out in history, but also why we're told about it in the scripture is so that we can know that God. I'm just struck by in Deuteronomy where Moses says the sins of the fathers will be visited on the second and third generation, but the chesed of God extends to the thousandth generation. God may correct and discipline his people, but he is never going to forsake them. He's never going to give up on them. He's never going to not do exactly as he promised for them. That's an incredible thing to know about God. Anything else? Be the last one. I'll let you go.
5: Remember the other day when we were talking about head knowledge versus passion? Mm-hmm. For, for, okay. And wow. so when we were talking about the guy over here who had a heart for God, but intellectually he was out of it. Yeah. But he was sanctified right. and saved for eternal life. Then you go and we look here where you pursue wisdom, which implies we're trying to pursue understanding. Mm-hmm. But that can lead to a dead end street if you still don't have that passion. Right. And so, and that's the thing that's going around in my head a lot. What exactly? And I'm not asking you to answer it. It's just the problem is what does it mean to have a passion for the mm-hmm. Lord? I can I can define that myself, but I'm not the one that's making that right. decision. And so, and I guess that's one thing that doesn't make Christianity scary, but in the same sense, it, it does, because that's what we're going to be judged on. Mm-hmm. And so, so anyway, I don't know if you want to comment anything on that, but that whole idea of having a passion, the people in the Old Testament, if they had a passion for God, they were fine. Just like in the New Testament, if you have a passion for the Lord, or today we have a passion for Christ, we're where we're supposed to be, mm-hmm. that versus all the wisdom and head knowledge. It's always bothered me. I thought it was kind of weird where Solomon, the wisest guy in the world who had God right in his space and still, in the end, went his own way. Kind of amazing. So,
1: Yeah, I, I'm, you're catching me off guard because I've never analyzed what it means to have a passion for God. So this is just off the top of my head. But as we've been talking about, I think a passion for truth is part of a passion for God. Think for a second about all these people who were gathered around to listen to Jesus teaching. And they were intrigued, interested. Then they are even more interested when he brought fish and bread out of nothing. <laughs> then they are even more interested. And then all of a sudden, he stops delivering the bread and fish and starts saying some things I think is a little wacky, and they're out of there. That's somebody who doesn't have a passion for truth. It's not that interesting to engage them and to draw them in to a further pursuit of it. So there are many ways that can manifest itself in our life. But a passion for truth means I persevere. I keep going. No matter how weird it gets, no matter how boring it gets, no matter how hard it gets, I keep going because I want to know the truth. That's a passion for God, ultimately, I think. A passion for righteousness will be a part of a passion for God.
5: So So it's not just understanding part of what truth is, it's embracing it to the point that that's the way that I want to live my life. Exactly, exactly. That's the part that...
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's a miracle. If I don't have passion, then my prayer needs to be, I want you, help my not wanting you. Yeah, we don't do it adequately. If I see a lack of passion in me, the only place to go for that passion is to God. God, you need to change me. You need to give it to me. You need to grant it to me. Create it within me because I can't manufacture it. I can't make it be there if it's not there. And that's all we can do is I believe, help my unbelief kind of prayer. Okay, we'll continue this next week.